10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Boradar Pal, Kroisoy Abitawi. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Swansea, and welcome to the Twilight Show tonight. We meet Nathan Ginn, and tonight, what a show we're talking to Sarah Dove about whether we should be training teachers in crews and alternative provisions. So, join us. Off we go. Let's talk it out. Live from Swansea. This is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to Swansea, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, the Twilight Show on Wednesday with me Nathan Ginn and yeah welcome to Swansea, it is raining and, and I seem to say that every week but yep it is definitely raining is the new most used word by, by me raining uh early this morning in the early hours as i was cleaning my teeth there was a crack of thunder like nothing i've ever heard and the heavens opened like only it can in south wales and yeah it has been raining there have been rivers down the roads the car park full of puddles soggy blazers soggy shoes uh, it has been raining um so that's my update really raining uh, welcome to welcome to swansea but tonight Tonight, I am talking to Sarah Dove um, at Phoenix Ed, Sarah on Twitter, who's an experienced educator, and she is president of the national organisation Prus AP, representing uh, pupil referral units and alternative provision across England. And we are going to be talking about um, what sort of training support we should be giving to early careers teachers, PGCEs, um, any initial teacher training about this, I guess, you know, smaller sector of education this this kind of uh, area on on the edge i might say um but we have sarah with us so welcome sarah can you hear me i can hear you hello thank you for inviting me well thank you for coming on and you are coming through loud and clear so welcome to teachers talk radio thank you and um you, you know i've had a lot of messages about this show tonight um a lot of people um sort of reaching out because it's a, a, a kind of little corner, I guess, of education that maybe we don't talk about. Maybe we should more. Hopefully we'll get onto that. Um, and I asked in a Twitter poll, I asked um, what sort of training, what sort of experience people had had of pupil referral units and alternative provision. And it was about two thirds of people came back and said that they hadn't even stepped foot in one not even um, sort of had a tour as part of their induction training. Um, does that surprise you? Um, no, not really. I think there's a couple of things to consider is obviously a Twitter poll is only getting a small number of teachers that use Twitter in that kind of way. But yeah. my experience is that people 
are surprised by pupil referral units and alternative provision. And even if some of them have had a bit of a tour, they're unlikely to experience the kind of breadth of different pupil referral units and alternative provisions that exist. Um, even in going back 20 years now, so I'm showing my age, um, our um, part of my graduate teacher program was spending one day in a pupil referral unit being shown around. And e so even that in terms of visiting for an observation for a day doesn't really give you the colour of what happens on a day-to-day -day basis in a pupil referral unit or alternative provision. Yeah, certainly. And I think you know, I've been lucky enough. I, I work in an alternative provision in South Wales that is part of a school, and I have been to two other local schools. So, you know, within our our area, and pupils do move move between those schools. They're very close by, um, and they each have a similarly named unit. So, uh, you know, I work at one called Pace because my school starts with a P, and there's one down the road called Chase, and because they start with a CH. You know, so all set up very similarly. But when I went to them, all entirely different. So even within the same local authority, even set up with the similar names, they were in, you know, really different uh, approaches, expectations. So, you know, hopefully that's something we'll be able to talk about as well. But to get us started, if you wouldn't mind setting the scene for our listeners, it, sort of introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about where you've come from, what you currently do. No problem at all. So um, I've been working in the education sector for um, 20 years. Um, I started out working as a learning support assistant, um, working with children on the old work-related learning courses. So the vocational courses where children had easily either newly arrived to the UK, were on entry-level courses, or had been excluded from school um, and their pupil referral unit. It was seen as sort of 20 years ago as their last chance. Um, I soon became the English coordinator for that role within the college setting before then moving into alternative provision in a psychiatric unit um, where I was the head of education. But as part of that, they realised that Although I had my certificate in education, I didn't have qualified teacher status. So I was seconded to um, a local comprehensive school, very large in inner London, to do my graduate teacher programme. Um, so I had the best of both worlds in a way, in that I had a year in mainstream school, um, secondary school, as well as working, um, you can imagine how tired I was, um, as the uh, teacher in charge of a psychiatric unit. But as part of my placement as well, I um, did two weeks in an um, a sort of uh, contrasting um, school. So I intentionally worked two weeks in an all-girls school, um, grammar school, um, in quite a uh, sort of rural area as well. So I, I felt like that I had experiences of different environments um, and so on. And so since then, I've carried on working in pupil referral units and alternative provision because that's what I really enjoy doing, um, hence my role as president of Prusat. Um, and now I'm the head of behaviour and inclusion for a London borough as well, supporting schools, pupil referral units and alternative provisions to include young people. So a bit of a kind of mixed career um, progression, a bit random, um, but one that I've really enjoyed. Um, and I think it's been really important for me to work in mainstream um, as well as pupil referral units and alternative provision in order to understand the continuum of support and education available for children. 
And there's something I want to grab onto there, um, just about your experience of teacher training, and it's that that contrast in school bit. Because I was mm. talking at work today about sort of teacher training and all of these things, you know, discussing the show. And I said, when I, you know, I trained as a primary school teacher initially, um, and I I was lucky enough to work as a, a teaching assistant in a pupil referral unit for a year before I did my teacher training. Um, so I had a bit of experience with that. But when I got my teacher training, they said. Um, you have to do a placement, and this was a PGC, so only a year, but you have to do a placement out of key stage. Now, what, what that meant for us was they just meant either key stage one or key stage two, you know, depending on which you were going to focus on. They didn't really mean out of um, out of key stage. Not They didn't send us to the secondary school. I was talking to my secondary colleagues, um, and one of the old ones said that he'd, he'd been sent for a week to a primary school to see. But it sounds like you, your teacher training was that 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 to me sounds like quite a good idea that you're getting really different experiences then. Um, definitely, I got um, very different experiences. I think from the um, the psychiatric unit education to the mainstream school, but the formal placement as well. Uh, although it was only two weeks um, in that rural um, all girls school, um, I think it was a grammar school. Um, as I recall as well so that was very good but at the same time I didn't have much experience of different key stages Um, I have worked um, teaching in a primary school several years ago now so quite a few years probably about 15 years after I'd qualified as a teacher and it does feel like a very different world as well Um, I think there is a different skill set I find primary very very difficult I think you've got to know a lot about a lot of things whereas within secondary I was able to focus on sociology citizenship um, personal health and social education and so on whereas working in a primary school was another Um, incredible learning curve working with children that were uh, younger um, within a large primary school as well as well as overseeing the um, the additional resource provision for children with uh, special needs but in particular around speech and language needs and autistic spectrum conditions. And it's probably worth us saying for for the listeners as well if they hadn't experienced it but pupil referral units exist for for primary school age children as well and there is alternative provision at you know at a young age as well because we do see I've got your book open by the way I'll just give it a shout because I have been reading it behaving together in the classroom a teacher's guide to nurturing behavior which I tweeted out a picture of earlier but there's um it says in there some data that that free pupils in 10,000 primary school age are are excluded or were excluded in the 2017-2018 period so there is a provision there at that age as well and um, but also just to add um, pupil referral units and alternative provision is not just for children that have been excluded from school so pupil referral units and alternative provision also includes provision for children that are too poorly to attend school as well so what you might find is that the number of primary school children that attend pupil referral units might also equally include children who have life limiting and life threatening conditions such as cancer and so on but also they're preventative and the idea is that some people referral units will work with schools alongside in nurture groups for example to support young people's inclusion back into mainstream now that so it might not just be that they're excluded but also to build capacity of the mainstream school to support that young person uh, for their educational journey for some it might be used as a place where actually they identify that a young person has a special need um, above and beyond um, 
what can be managed in the mainstream school, for example, um, and then an educational healthcare plan possibly um, might be assessed for, and they might then go to special school or even to mainstream school, but with more significant support and understanding around their needs. That would be the hope as well. But I have certainly worked with primary school children that have been excluded from school as well. Yep, and you are right to pick me up there because I've fallen into my own trap (laughs) that I've set of talking about um, pupil referral units as a, you know, as, as a, this place that people, a lot of people might assume it being that it is where, you know, naughty and excluded children are sent to, you know, and, and that is not the case um, or certainly not the case in its, in the sense that I would like to think of certainly my provision and and some of the other provisions that there are. No, absolutely. And I, th- I think there is a understanding and a cliche around pupil referral units, around it just being for children that are excluded. Um, but we know that lots of children may attend for different reasons or be on role of a pupil referral unit whilst they undertake home education as well. But I think you're right to say that there was a stigma, and I think there still is a stigma, around pupil referral units being a place where naughty children get sent um, to improve their behaviour. But unsurprisingly, it's a lot more complex than that. Um, and teachers and the governors and so on, and, and the parents and the children themselves can work really hard to sort of make things different for themselves before they return to school. And the best proofs and APs are ones that work in collaboration with parents, but also um, the school that the children will be returning to, to make sure that they feel like they belong um, and they can continue on their educational journey. Um, We know that children of a very young age are going to find it more difficult to regulate their behaviour. They might have um, had trauma in their lives, or it might be that school um, perhaps doesn't know how to meet their needs in different ways. So when we can start to unpick about what's driving that behavior i think that's where really good ap can really um come into its own yep and you know we will get on to and and addressing you know as you say this cliche but i have heard it myself where where teachers and you know staff are telling a child off and talking about that they 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 may face exclusion and they are talking about a, a you know, you'll be sent to the Prue. You don't want to, you know, as if it's a, a punishment, as if it is still part of the sanction. And I want to get on to talking about that later, but that certainly, I think, is something we can discuss and address if that's all right. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to sort of speak about it now in terms of it it being potentially dangerous as well. So I often work with parents where their child might have been permanently excluded and parents may say things such as, my child is not going there, they won't be surrounded by other naughty children. But what that means is that the provision that's been made available for the local authority isn't necessarily being taken up. And I think that can open up to potential safeguarding issues about where is that child, what are they doing? But that's driven by newspaper headlines, um, by messages perhaps from teachers in school. I have heard it being used in context of a punishment just as you have of, you know, if you carry on like that, you'll end up at the Prue, um, as if ending up is the end of of everything in terms of their educational opportunities and so on. Now, as a parent myself, um, 
I would be saddened and upset if my young if my child was excluded from school. But I also know that actually people feral units and alternative provisions work incredibly hard to look at what the difficulties are um, to signpost children into getting the support they need, but also to help them transition um, back to school or um, into post-16 education and so on. I think the biggest danger is when it's used as a punishment and a sanction um, and it's seen as the um, end of their educational career when that's not the case. Yeah, uh, 100% with you on that because it is not, you know, from someone on the inside, that's not how it feels. Uh, and and I, that is one of the questions that this whole sort of thing raised to me and it was spurred on by an opportunity I had to talk to some PGC students at my own school about really what we do and hopefully put it in a context of a wider support network. Now I did want to ask you one thing and I wanted to, to seize on the opportunity of having someone with such experience and, and, and wealth because I had a message in after saying that we were talking on the show someone uh, obviously had seen that I was working in alternative provision and, and messaged me sort of saying oh how do you get into it? What's the career? What's the career route? And we've heard yours, and we've heard a little bit about mine. And I kind of had to message back and say, it's really different for every person that I have met, and they seem to have um, almost every person I've met who works in, in this area has had a different journey into it. But what do you see as you know, as someone who works in it, as some of the the sort of key attributes or skills that a teacher needs to really you know, um, be successful with their pupils in alternative provision and, and pupil referral units? I think that's such a good question and it echoes exactly, I think I saw the question as well, um, every way into AP and PRU is so different in terms of career path. In terms of skills, what you need is the skills in which you have within mainstream school, which is in terms of knowing your curriculum, um, knowing how it should be delivered, how how children learn best, um, how you can teach the best of your ability. I don't think that's any different. Um, I think there's, in terms of the sort of teaching standards and skills, um, again, I was sort of looking at those earlier about having high expectations of behaviour um, and using a range of strategies um, is really important. Now, whilst the teaching standards say using praise, sanctions and rewards consistently and fairly, I do think that there is an innovation um, with working in a PRU or AP where you really start to unpick what's driving that behaviour rather than just looking at a culture of good behaviour. It has to go beyond that. Um, really understanding where children's journey, so where, why they have come to you, um, why they have um, started attending a pupil referral unit is really important and how you can look at addressing and I suppose compensating for some of the challenges they might have with their behaviour or if it's for children who are, to, uh, who are poorly and um, the effects of medical needs on perhaps some of their behaviours and their learning as well. I don't think the skills are any different. I do wonder if you have to be more resilient perhaps because there's there's more of a deluge of challenging backgrounds for these children that you probably become more aware of in pupil referral units and alternative provision not to say those children don't exist within mainstream but you are more likely to hear about it whereas 
in mainstream. Um, those people that know the stories of the children are probably more in the safeguarding team. So I think that resilience is really important. I think reflective practice, being able to see what could be done differently is really important. Um, and I think I talk about it in my book. Um, I haven't read my book for a while because I've been very busy. Um, and also I don't like reading my own stuff because it feels really weird. But the idea of thinking differently is really important and so not getting stuck in the same behaviour. Um, I always think that the behaviour of a child is relates to um, relationships. And I don't mean, you know, just building positive relationships, but thinking about what your own role is in supporting a child developing good um, good habits in school and that positive culture. And I think if things don't go the way that you want to want them to go, is that you're reflective and you think about what might be different. Yeah, you, you know, I, and I'm, I'm nodding along and sort of saying, yep, those are the things that I would want, um, that, you know, adaptability. I often talk, you know, I, I joked with the... Um, the PGC students that I, I talked to today that I, you know, I don't lesson plan. I, I, I option things about what I, uh, you know, what I could possibly do if things are going that way, if things are going that way, if I need to speak to that child, if I, you know, so the reactiveness in a way to being aware of emotions, to be aware of, aware of how things are going, what, where the challenges are. I think that that I certainly think is one of the challenges that people maybe don't expect, you know, you, we have mainstream colleagues who teach in my provision and you you cannot come over with a solid lesson plan that you expect to go exactly as you go. I, but I even think that's the same within mainstream, to be honest, when I've worked in mainstream. Um, and I suppose I come from, because I've been working in education for 20 years, you know, the fine lesson plans, the schemes of work, the activities um, and that kind of um, cliche and, and kind of much rubbish now, you know, kinesthetic learning approaches, all those sorts of things. Um, but that doesn't really prepare you for being in a class of 30 children um, who might have had massive different experiences during that day as well. So even when I worked in mainstream, that adaptability becomes really important. Um, I might have an overarching theme in which I want to talk, which I want to teach within pupil ferro units or even mainstream. But sometimes, um, you know, I confess lessons have gone wayward um, and I'm sure they will in the future. Um, and yeah, that adaptability, I think, is really important for any setting because you're working with children and children are uh, curious, they're dynamic and they're pretty random sometimes as well. Uh, yep. Yeah. They are, you know, some some days they can be get very random, and and but some days that you know, I I have to say I see a light and a passion and something that I want to grab hold of, and so I will, you know, if I can see a success, if I can see a win in something, I have to say I do go with it some days to the you know expense of what I was going to do because I, I want some wins for the class and I want some you know excitement and some success and some enjoyment out of school which unfortunately sometimes by the time I see them at least they've maybe lost a little bit I think the joy of learning is so important and um, I'm obviously not going to test you on you know what page of my book have you read or anything <laughs> like that because you only got it yesterday and you work as well um, but I talk about my own educational journey in terms of my schooling um, and one of the big things was um, someone believing in that I was able to do things um, despite my own background of really challenging circumstances. Um, 
but having that love of learning. So for me, the love of learning was around sociology um, and that really changed how I viewed education. And I want to give every child that I work with um, a love of learning. And it doesn't have to be the love of school either because I know that schools are, they're really bizarre places. They're really artificial places. Um, But I want to make sure that there's something that they can really latch onto, really enjoy, really engage with. Um, just like my teacher did for me, I want to be able to do that for the children that I work with. Um, Mr. Brian is the teacher that I talk about, um, and he was just a- absolutely fabulous. But it was his belief in my ability, I think, that was a key thing. And I think every child, but especially those that attend Prus or APs, um, need a champion for themselves. They need someone that really believes that they can do better. Um, they can and they will do better. And, you know, you've you've kind of touched on the love of learning there, which leads me on to uh, my, another question, just but, you know, we are going to have to go to the ads in a second. But um, one of the things I hear a lot, uh, because we are trying to develop a love of learning, so we are maybe doing things that are slightly different, Okay, we, we certainly, uh, at my place, we refer to it as being an alternative curriculum in the sense that we are trying to find maybe some other routes that maybe aren't as academic or maybe have a, a different route for the child to take to get that learning back. But one of the things, and this is harsh, but I'm just going to put it out there, they will say things like, um, why are the naughty children being treated to, you know, an education that we're not giving to the, the children who are behaving? Do you hear that? Um in a way, yes, but thankfully not for a number of years. It used to be a big thing on a kind of Daily Mail headline around taking children who are naughty, in inverted commas, um, out on trips. Um, it has changed. I think there's more understanding. Um, but at the same time, do I think that all children should foster a love of learning? Absolutely. Should all children have a curriculum that's engaging and interesting and prepares them for adult life? Absolutely. So I think that criticism, I think, make, needs to make us think about what education is on offer for all children. Because actually what you might have within mainstream school is the children that drop out, the children that are anxious, they're worried and they're quiet, but they might still be present in class and they might behave incredibly well but is the curriculum supporting them and their self-esteem maybe not so maybe there is a conversation there around academic rigor is so important but how do we also provide them with those opportunities that proves an ap um, have the time and investment um, in some instances in which to engage with Um, but i would also if i hear that criticism talk about the fact that um, I, I don't know where you work exactly, but I've I've walked into Prus and AP that are wholly underfunded and their premises are in a real state where they don't have access to um, fields to go and play and they don't have access to um, a sports hall. Um, their classrooms, I've seen, seen with mould on, the amount of Prus that I've worked in where we've had a bucket under a roof um, in order to collect the rain is ridiculous. So... I hear that criticism and I think it's right to ask the question, but I think it's also, I think it's a misunderstanding of how the buildings in Prus and AP are often underfunded, under-resourced and forgotten about. 
Uh, yeah, and I a hundred percent. You know, I have visited myself. Um, you know, alternative provisions attached to schools that are housed in what was the caretaker's house. Yeah, you know, on the edge of site. And so, it, you know, it's some people are learning in the living room and some people are learning in the bedroom, but it's got some desks in it instead. And I have seen that. I'm really fortunate in that our school was redeveloped. And as part of the redevelopment, what was an offsite provision was brought on site and we had a purpose built kind of area for us, um, a, a, a purpose built area that was well purpose built for that purpose to be able to do the kind of things that as you say we need to engage and we need to um, work with these children to help them access their education um, I want to pull in on one of the things you said about this, this quiet behavior and it is that uh, my biggest bugbear I will say is we talk about behavior what most people mean is bad behavior they say, oh, you know, we're going to talk about behavior management. Uh, they mean behavior. When they talk about um, behavior being communication, what they mean is the explosive loud behavior. And we sometimes forget the withdrawn. Absolutely. The I, th I think I've got to challenge you on the word bad um, because obviously that's my job. Um, <laughs> so I think where children don't follow the rules is obviously seen as bad and we can have a long conversation about that but one of the big things that i worry about is exactly as you said those quieter voices those voices that might not be seen um, or heard those children that might sit very quietly look like they're diligently working um, but they might also be in an equal amount of pain but don't show it in the same way um, you know, so I would say that they internalise their sort of mental well-being, whereas other children might be externalising it in ways that's really difficult to ignore. But when you internalise it and you have poor self-esteem, it's very easy to be lost. Um, and there's often those ideas about um, children starting to not attend school and how difficult that is for them um, and how going back to school is really hard. Um, they don't feel heard. They don't feel understood. Um, I particularly worry about girls, for example, who might be on the um, autistic spectrum, who are very quiet um, or children or that just sort of fade into the background. Their needs are just as high. Um, and it's something I do talk about in um, my book as well. Um, and those children might be the ones that you see in psychiatric units or pupil referral units for children with medical needs. They're just as important and we shouldn't forget those children either. Um, but it can be easy to. Um, and that's my that's my deep worry. And I think part of my worry about that is because I have a 12-year-old daughter that would probably fit that, um, that cohort of children. Um, so I do run a kids' mental health chat on a Tuesday um, on Twitter where we talk about some of those issues around those quieter children as well as the ones that might behave in exactly the way you said, the more explosive external ways. Yeah, and uh, the um, autistic spectrum element for, for girls at secondary school is something that I've only really become really aware of quite how complex or um, difficult that can be with diagnosis, with people being aware of what the um, traits look like. Um, I know Tom Rogers has got a show on tomorrow talking about autism. Ooh. and um, But it's um, I hadn't realised quite how undiagnosed at primary school it was and then how it could show in such a different way at secondary school. 
and and then cause uh, I guess such such problems within that that group that people might not be aware of, might not recognise the classic traits. I guess we would call them, um, and and that's something that was explained to me really recently, and it has kind of changed my perception about a lot of female behaviour. I guess at secondary school. I think um, autistic spectrum condition and lots of other things are often through the lens of a male gaze. So what do we understand about boys with um, autistic spectrum conditions and how girls might mask, boys mask as well, but how they might present is a lot more challenging. But also what I have found with girls in particular, um, especially in primary school, is that they're often smaller environments, they're often... Um, they might be able to make friends with one or two children. Um, and you might, as a parent, see the fallout at home, whereas at school they might diligently work, mask a lot of their behaviour, suppress, and then it comes out at home. And then when the teachers get the paperwork, they say, well, I don't see any of that in school. So there needs to be a finer understanding about what does autistic spectrum conditions mean for a whole gamut and range of different children um, but also we're hearing more about adults being diagnosed and how um, there's some cliches around understanding of autistic spectrum conditions i.e you know they don't feel emotion they're not empathetic and things like that when actually sometimes the opposite is true and just because you've met one ch child with autistic spectrum condition well really what you've met is one child with autistic spectrum condition um, you, you haven't met the the whole wide range of differences that that child might present as well. Yeah, and I would say that's very true of a lot of things when 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 talking about the kind of more um, the 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 elements that uh, might be um, factors in a child's um, behaviour. Um, when we come to see them um, when they have maybe struggled in mainstream education, is that I, every child is really different. Yes hugely different and I think it's human nature to make comparisons and categorise um, and try and see how that child links to another child and so on. Um, absolutely it's human nature but every child is different, every family situation is different, there is no typical child that might attend a pupil referral unit on alternative provision. Um, I know there's lots of discussions about what well, actually if they're excluded, it must be very serious. Um, and that indeed may be the case that uh, there's a serious incident that's occurred to get them there. But equally, it might just be that there's, um, I say might just be, I don't, don't mean to kind of minimise it in that way, but persistent disruptive behaviour. Um, I've known children being excluded for bringing a vape pen into school well there's a whole range of different reasons why a child might be excluded from school and people will interpret that differently as well just like they'll interpret the child themselves differently well, that is a perfect segue for me because after the adverts which we will have to go to um i would like to talk about behavior as you know as we use in education behavior because it can be controversial People certainly have different views on it. And I know in your book, you do mention about schools like Michaela, uh, which have a one uh, kind of approach to, um, or they have a suggest, you know, they, they are perceived as having one kind of approach towards behaviour. So um, if you're happy to stay around after the adverts, we will talk behaviour. Fantastic. Thank you. Fabio, I'll see you on the other side of the adverts. Thank Off you. Bye-bye. Need support with your phonics teaching? 
Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE-validated programs to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Diana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Um, Borodar Pab, Kroisoi Abitawi. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Swansea. Welcome back to Sarah Dove um, talking about PRUS and AP, Pupil Referral Units and Alternative Provision. We have a caller on the line, Kitup1998. Are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, doesn't sound like they're connecting. Um, uh, so um, we will carry on. Kit up. If you do want to try and again, uh, tr try and call in. Uh, we would love to hear any questions or any comments that anyone has. Um, Sarah, welcome back. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Um, now, just before we went to the ads, um, we are um, we were talking about behaviour. Okay. And um, I am going to put something out there and you can, you can shoot me down and, and, and challenge me as much as you want, because uh, when we talk about behavior and certainly if you mention behavior online in any sort of edu Twitter or, or anywhere like that, there are a lot of different opinions, but we often say um, commun um, behavior is communication. Um, I am along that path, but I think I would want to expand on that because I don't see it as uh, like communication because it's really hard to understand it's like someone communicating to me but in a language I don't understand and so I'm uncomfortable a bit with saying that language is communication because it kind of puts an emphasis that teachers should speak that language Am I, does that make sense uh, it does make sense I think I have a lot of worries about the idea of behavior as communication and um, I was interviewed by David Didow um, quite some time ago now and I spoke about my concerns of it being a cliche um, and it not really unpicking and establishing an understanding um, about a child, a teacher, the difficulties a teacher might face in the classroom and so on and I think behaviour is communication as you've sort of indicated well 
if something's really difficult in a class, does it mean that the teacher isn't listening or understanding? Does it mean the child is really frustrated? It could be all of those things, but it's often a lot more complex than that anyway. Um, and I think you're right to say it might be something that, yes, it might be communication, but in a language that isn't clear to me and I don't understand it. And again, it doesn't it doesn't change anything. It doesn't solve anything. Same behaviour is communication. It doesn't give you any tools or support on how to manage or to learn that language. Um, and I think there's a sense of actually if you're professionally curious, that can be really helpful. But also behaviour is communication. It, it, it doesn't look at the wider systemic issues that might be involved in uh, the school, society, the culture, the environment, the family, and so on. It really just focuses on the child as being potentially the source of the problem or the teacher being the source of the problem or the environment. But we know that it's more complex than that. We know there's significant interplays around behaviour and what do we do about that. So my view is that actually it becomes something that is a catchphrase to mean all but really doesn't mean much. Oh, I, I very much like that as an answer. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I've i not found it useful or I found it, um, I don't want to say flippant, but I found it almost as a, uh, you know, for, for, for a show. So I certainly, or that I'm, un, as you say, underprepared and I worry about young teachers then coming in. And if they're, they're training on um, how to support um, when things are not working is oh well you know their 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 behavior is communicating you know here's an uh, abc sheet of uh, antecedent behavior and and what it's communicating you know you you are a first year student off you go try and unpick it that that worries me that we haven't given enough support or understanding of where their professional capabilities might end yeah and i think that's where those ideas you asked earlier about the kind of skill set that someone might need um, within pupil referral units or alternative provision. But I think generally anyway, work with children is, you know, what do you notice? What do you understand and how do you respond to it um, is becomes really important. Um, and I think there are times where you do have to be reactive to a child's behaviour because there are safety issues, there are concerns, but also because we're human. And we shouldn't forget, actually, that we respond in ways um, to what's happening in front of us that may not be in our best interest or the child's best interest, but we are human as long as obviously safeguarding, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think if we take a step back and really try to understand what's going on for that child and then look at that with that professional curiosity and understanding, that becomes really important as well. Yeah, I, and I would, you know, I would, you know, I, as I say, I've, t I've spoken to some PGE students this morning and I did have your book in front of me and I read out sort of the, the sections on the different factors, in external factors, internal environmental factors, mm. home factors, and kind of went, you know, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, you know, it could be, this, it could be multiple of these. They could be interacting with each other in different ways. It could be a sort of um, a, a known condition you know, um, which you, you also talk about um, that is interplaying with these other things, or it could be uh, uh, any number of factors. And again, my worry is that, you know, we expect maybe too much too early or we, you know, we um, don't support enough in that situation for teacher training because 
the people I talk to haven't had a lot of this specific element within their teacher training. No, and I think it's really sad in a way that um, I'm writing a new book at the moment and I talk about um, my previous um, training around special needs and including with that social, emotional, mental health, although it was called something different at the time. And we had one day training um, where I don't think it was even one day, to be honest. I think it was the afternoon um, where we had a little lecture on dyslexia and that was it. And and I really hope, um, is what I'm writing in the book, is that these early career teachers have a different experience where they get to find out more about a range of different special needs. But actually, having spoken to early career teachers, I don't think that's the case. I think it still remains limited. Um, and I think there's a lot around the culture of the school and how to promote positive behaviour um, and sanctions and rewards and so on. But again, it feels very surface level. Now, I don't think you can pick that up in a in a couple of days. I think it does come about with experience and reflection and continual practice, um, like anything really. Um, and whether or not in your sort of early stages of your career, that is the time and space to do it. I don't I think there's so many competing demands that behaviour becomes put to the side and instead that's left potentially to um, senior leaders, for example, to set the culture and tone um, and then obviously for um, teachers to follow it. And I think that's really important because we all need to be supported in the classroom as well, so I'm not negating that. But it means that how do you kind of hone your craft um, I wonder about that. How do you how do you find out what works and what doesn't work? I don't think there's any easy solution. But when I was looking at the um, statutory um, sort of induction guidance, I looked at finding the word discipline, for example, and it's it's mentioned once, um, and and all it says is not present the ECT on a day to day basis with discipline problems that are unreasonably demanding for the setting. And that was it. And I think, well, how does that give you a tool in how to just to say, well, you know, we hope that your class is nice and peaceful. Um, and there's no mention of behaviour unless you go into the teacher standards, which is then um, four bullet points around having high expectations of behaviour and establish a framework for discipline. Discipline isn't necessarily about understanding. Um, it's about consequence. Um and those sanctions and rewards and so on. So again, they've written some things, but can you take those away as a teacher and do anything with them? Probably not. And then if they're not getting the support they need in terms of developing those skills, then that's not great either. Um, I don't know if you've noticed as well, again, Twitter is just a microcosm of education, but the amount of newly qualified teachers who are really struggling um, really finding things difficult. There's so many competing demands for them. And it's it must be an awful environment for them at the moment. Um, and I wonder how we can make that better for them. Oh, and, you know, certainly, you know, I will always say, I'm, you know, I am a strong advocate for um, using techniques such as co-regulation and empathy to understand our pupils as part of what other people might term discipline and such like uh, and building the rapport and the relationships 
but you can't do that if you are not regulating yourself. You know, if you are stressed, if you are overworked, it is very easy to snap at a child. It is very easy to, you know, be short with uh, someone who needs your time. And yeah, I think making it hard for teachers makes it hard for pupils in that sense. Absolutely. It's again, and that's why when I looked at the name of the book, I was asked to write a proposal about managing behaviour in the classroom. And my view was, it's not about me managing behaviour, it's about how we work together. So I insisted that I wouldn't um, have the word managing behaviour in the book. Um, It's how, you know, that co-regulation, attunement and so on. Now, it might be that there's where actually discipline is really important and that, you know, the line is drawn here and this is not tolerable in my classroom because you are not safe and therefore others are not safe. Um, But it's no coincidence that Steve Waters um, wrote um, a bit about my book in terms of on the back. Um, He works for the, or he's the director of Teach Well Alliance, and he talks a lot about the mental health of teachers. And that's really important as well. And the um, chapter at the back, um, I talk about, um, you know, and I should probably use the cliche of a trigger warning. Um, I talk about my own um, suicide attempt um, because working with children is incredibly hard and incredibly difficult and you have to look after yourself. And again, I don't want to use phrases around um, a cliche, but you have to make sure that, you know, you're sorted before you can help others. Um, You know, they talk about the idea of putting a mask on in an aeroplane and all those sorts of things. Um, But it's true that actually... If we are stressing um, teachers out to the extent that they feel sick, they're worried, they're anxious, and they're tearful, and it's affecting their relationships, then that's a really worrying stance to be in. Um, it's not fair on the individual teaching. It's certainly not fair on the children or their colleagues either. Um, and we have to support them. Um, that's why, for me, behaviour is not just about the children, but how do we support teachers as well? Um, Yep. And I will take a couple of moments there to plug a couple of our other shows, because as you rightly say, Steve Waters has been on as a guest on uh, one of our uh, Teacher Talk Radio shows talking about um, well-being. So if there are any listeners who want to find that, if you go to um, ttradio.org slash listen back and type his name into the search bar, you'll find that. and also, you know, I, I have heard um, myself on the show, we, I was talking to a couple of, um, uh, I think they initially were um, mental health support nurses who worked in education, but they were now working to support um, teachers and senior leaders and particularly DSLs. And this is something that I would like to see transitioned into provisions like my own, where they were doing um, a regular kind of support session to talk about um, some of these, um, you know, the, the hardships of that we face when when dealing with what, you know, just to hear about some of these experiences that children have faced can be difficult for the person hearing it. So, you know, and, and so I think you're right, staff need that support too. And there's some really um, amazing practice happening in some areas. So, for example, Joe Lawrence, um, who works as a head teacher in Suffolk. Um, she does lots around supervision of staff and she insists on it as well. Um, as part, because actually, as you said, that you're working with the stories of children continually that are really upsetting. So whether or not a child has been excluded, um, whether or not a child is really poorly, um, 
you know, I often work with children and those in medical crews might also have this experience where children die. And that's really upsetting because you never want to know about a child that dies, um, but yet know that that's an experience of many people. So that supervision becomes not just important for the the regulation of emotional well-being for the um, for the staff, but also about about working through the fact that some of the children don't have the most positive outcomes that you would like, and that we only have a certain amount of tools that we're able to use um, to support those children. And um, certainly, when you know talk about the children maybe not having the success, maybe in you know in those medical settings, but also uh, through other educa- educational success or life success, and it does get banded around this idea of a uh, prue to prison pipeline or an exclusion to prison pipeline um, and the fact that we might not be successful with every child as much as we want to. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the prison, um, the prue to prison pipeline and some of that information was, I'm going to be awful here with my references and remembering, um, but it was based on a particular self-report um, in a prison and it was the prison population, I think under 50% said that they had been excluded from school. And that data is often used um, beyond that of, I think, what it was originally attended. One of which was that it was a self-report. Um, one of which was whether or not it was a fixed term exclusion or a permanent exclusion as well. Um, but it's also no surprise that children that find things difficult in school might also find diff- things difficult in the wider society. Um, and yes, absolutely, I've worked um, in secure training setting set- centres as well, where children are imprisoned, um, as well as working within the adult sector. Um, and that's really difficult. But there's also lots of children um, or adults, sorry, that go to prison and who have never been excluded from school. So um, some of those that follow me on Twitter might know my younger brother, Warren, who was um, released from prison last year um, for um, serious offences. And he got himself on an access course um, and he's now studying at the London School of Economics after getting distinctions all through his access course. Um, I'm a big believer that education can set you free. Um, and he made sure that he attended loads of different courses in his prison, for example. And I also started teaching him sociology over the phone. So to kind of acknowledge where I talk about the idea that people feral units are not the end either. Um, I also don't believe prisons are the end. And I think there are resources there and I don't think they're very well resourced and I think there's a lot of improvements to be made and I have real issues with imprisoning children as well but actually it is not always the end there are amazing things that people can do um, as well if they have um, support so one of the things that my brother talks about wasn't just the teachers in prison but it was the wider support network that helped him as well. Yeah, and you know, I, I spoke with um, a guy, Big Ant, um, Big Ant at Big Ant's Journey. He he now is a, a knife crime campaigner in mm-hmm. in um, Sheffield, um, but he talked to me about his experience of um, not being successful at school, uh, and and that included exclusions um, and uh, making some you know poor decisions around crime and and other such things and witnessing things. Um, but through that experience, he found the support he needed. And once he had found the support he needed or, or the way to 
access learning. He went on afterwards and, and came out of university with a first class degree Fantastic. and set up his own business. And I sit back and think, um, you know, the, we are looking for a key sometimes to, to to unlock this, which is an incredibly complex um, uh, person that, you know, for some people, I think it's very easy. And then we assume that for everyone, it should be easy. And for anyone um, who doesn't find education easy, there there is a, a, a deficit or a problem with them. And people find it very easy to blame, particularly if, as, as we say, with what tends towards exclusions or for you know, persistent disruptive behavior and, and those kind of things um, where uh, they can be things that annoy or upset teachers or that they think that the child needs to be in some way punished for. Um, when in fact, for me, I, I see it much more that we need to, we still need to um, work out that child. And I was very lucky to work at my last school with Asenko who used to say, you know, if things aren't working, we don't know enough we need to do more digging. We need to find out more about this child. Again, it's that kind of professional curiosity that becomes really important um, rather than just sticking to just seeing, just responding to what you see, but really trying to notice and understand and becomes very important. But also putting in not just yourself as a teacher, but that kind of multidisciplinary approach. But we also know that funding has been eroded. Um, CAMs waiting um, waiting times are extortionate. Families might not be invested or interested. So again, as you said, exactly the same. It's a lot more complicated. Um, but it's lovely to hear about um, that person. You called him Ants, didn't you? Who? Yeah, was- Big Ants Journey he is on Twitter. Big Ants uh, Journey, yeah. such a good name. Yeah. Um, and the fact that his journeys, you know, I hope that my brother will continue his amazing journey. Um, sort of, he talks about it being um, from prison to LSE in a year. Um, and that's yeah. incredible. Like, that's just amazing. And we should be celebrating that. Um, and I, I do think there's a fundamental issue with the um, criminal justice system and so on. And we need to do a lot more intervention. But it's also good to know that people do move on from that as well. Um, yep, yeah. and the final bit, I guess, we do need to go to the news so- shortly, but I wanted to get your opinion on this, about when we're talking about behaviour in this section, about um, the, for me, what I see as some of the quick fix or off-the-shelf behaviour strategies, which I would term within some of that zero-tolerance um, approaches that people talk about, um, things like slant, where you know we just you have to sit up straight you have to you know do these things which seem very appealing to me as a teacher because they are simple and they are clear and they are clean and I can open a book and it's probably a paragraph at most that explains it how do you feel about some of those approaches or things becoming they seem to be becoming more popular to me so I think they're probably always existed in one form or another. Um, I think the problem with slant, um, you know, sit up, listen, um, track the teacher, all those sorts of things, is that they may have a particular part to play in particular circumstances, but there's always going to be unintended consequences where certain children are unable to follow those rules and how do we support those children, but also how does the school make reasonable adjustments to include that child? Now, So in all honesty, I'm not a fan. Um, I don't talk about it very much online because um, I just think 
it doesn't necessarily become a positive environment where you can talk about that in a few characters on a tweet. But I am concerned about the the kind of regulation of the human body. And I, and I use that very kind of particularly about, you know, how you must sit, how you must listen, how you must attend to things. But also it almost becomes a performance. So just because you're looking doesn't mean you're listening. Um, and I'm sure... Um, I've said it to probably my own child, you know, look at me when I'm talking to you. Um, but actually, that doesn't mean she's listening. It's, you know, and and I think as well, there's a bit there around a performance of, for the, so the teacher has a visual clue about the child listening and taking into account the learning and progressing. But to me, it feels very uncomfortable. Um, it feels very regimented. It doesn't bolster creativity and interest. Um, I find it too controlling, to be honest. Um, but I will be clear that I've not seen it in action in terms of um, the Michaela School. Um, I was hoping to visit at some point, and I know that um, the head teacher is very keen on visits and so on. I think you can just drop a email um like you can do it on their website um but i'm heavily pregnant at the moment so there's no way i'm coming in at the moment um and i suspect that visits are slightly uh, reduced anyway during covid but i would like to see how it works but i would be concerned about the unintended consequences or perhaps the intended consequences of how do we make sure we include all children in the community not just the ones that are able to follow um, the slant approach. Yep. And I really like what you said there about the, you know, making adjustments, supporting the children who need support and able to do that. And that is very much something that we talk a lot about because, you know, we have high expectations, uh, you know, as every school should have high expectations, but in any system where you are catering for a thousand people, there are, you know, there are going to be some with struggles who struggle with any aspect of that, whether it be the fact that, you know, the hall's big and there are lots of people in it or that, you know, the the order of the corridors, or it could be anything that some someone is going to struggle with. And schools and teachers really need to think about, you know, who that is, as you say, the unintended consequences and what positive you can do to help them to engage still with it. Yeah, and also whether or not that, whether or not things like slant or any type of behavioural approach um, has the has the intended outcomes that you wish. So again, that idea of reflection and so on. So if the intended consequence is around a calm, peaceful environment, do all children find that a calm, peaceful environment? Or do some find it anxiety-provoking, stressful and difficult? Um, and if some do... Why do they? And is it really just about making reasonable adjustments or is it going, actually, this doesn't work for our school community? Um, and whilst it looks like things are in an orderly fashion, actually, the reality is that the children are acquiescing um, and they're not necessarily um, engaging with their learning. Um, it just appears on the outside as calm and purposeful. But the reality is very different for those children's experience. So I think it's those aspects that need to be considered as well. Um, and I think being reflective as a head teacher is a key skill um, and as a senior leader and as a teacher as well. So it's not um, that reflection doesn't just is not just about your early careers teachers, but it's also those people that are leading the schools as well. Yeah, and I think you've hit on my uncomfortableness with it about the, you know, the, 
it looks it, you know it, it, it's almost simplified it, yeah it looks ordered it looks like everyone's paying attention and and you know it looks neat and i don't feel that teaching or education you know i struggle to understand how 30 different individuals you know can be neat in any form and we can do things that help that but the the idea that it can be that regimented you know i personally struggle with i guess yeah i mean and it'd be great to go and see how it's done in action um, and chat to some um, children directly the, a lot of the work that i do is talking to children directly about their experiences of things so it'd be interesting to see how they view it um at the moment i'm an outsider looking in um it doesn't feel right to me, but whether or not it feels right to their community is an entirely different matter. Um, but as I said, I try and avoid um, conversations like that on Twitter just because um, I find that people become very polarised in their view and they don't necessarily want to listen to other people's views. Um, yeah, it, you know, it gets pretty extreme pretty quickly when you does. start talking about behaviour. And I think both ends of whatever spectrum or, you know, however we are defining these different approaches can misrepresent each other for argument's sake. And I think that's really unhelpful because it's, you know, teaching's nuanced. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, we have to go to the news. Um, and when we come back from the news, um, it would be great just to talk a little bit about, you know, Prue specifically, AP specifically, um, what teachers, what are the key things that teachers really need to understand early on in the career, which I think I would hope would mean that there is better support in the mainstream if they understand that continuum. Are you happy to stay around? Of course. Fabulous. So off to the news we go. We will see you all on the other side. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Megan Goods. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. Schools have faced warnings this week from data privacy watchdogs following the rollout of facial recognition technology in canteens. The systems were initially installed to be more COVID-safe, allowing students to make contactless payments. A spokesman for the schools implementing the new technology said the software makes payments faster and over 97% of school communities had given their consent for it to be used. However, a spokeswoman for children's digital rights group, Defend Digital Me, argued that biometrics should never be used for children in educational settings. No ifs, no buts. It's not necessary, just ban it. The focus group recommended that the least invasive option always be used where young people are concerned. Three schools across Buckinghamshire have been targeted this week by anti-vaccination campaigners. The protest groups targeted the schools with loudspeakers, flyers and QR codes which students were encouraged to scan to listen to a song warning them about the alleged dangers of the vaccine. Police were forced to attend one of the scenes to disband protesters. 
the county remains on red alert for potential anti-vaccine protests at their schools and have had to issue guidance to staff at schools on how to handle demonstrators. That was your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea. Um, it is Teachers Talk Radio, it's the Wednesday Night Twilight Show and we are talking about a little bit of behaviour just before and we are going to be talking about pupil referral units and alternative provisions with Sarah Dove. Um, welcome back Sarah. Hello. I, I, I need to stop listening to the news in this show because I, I despair sometimes. Please, I have to say to people, please don't hassle schools. We've got it hard enough as it is, and and this uh, it, uh, I can't I can't even sometimes. You know, it it, it really does seem to be uh, the the pressure on schools at the moment from every direction seems to be intense, doesn't it? Um, interestingly enough, I was just uh, messaging a friend because the local school has protesters outside today, um, and I was just imagining, you know, they're their 12-year-old son coming out of school and seeing all these protests around the COVID vaccination, um, I, I do find it very difficult, I have to say. Yeah, you know, I because I, I am I am pro demonstration. You know, I am a you know a, a, a trade union flag waving. You know, I, I've been on strike. I you know I've been there, but I, I don't know schools children. really children. Yeah, really, you know that doesn't. It's not like the you know. I think people maybe overestimate how much power head teachers and teachers really have. In the grand in the grand scheme of things, to you know, we are all at the mercy of other masters. Um, I think that's probably incredibly true. Yeah. Anyway, that that's my little rant about <laughs> it. Always, it always happens after the news. I always hear something that you know just dreadfully upsets me about about the state of things. But there we go. Um. So we were going to talk about what you know what people um should know about pupil referral units alternative provisions um that would help because my belief would be a better understanding um uh, you know earlier on in careers you know and obviously we'd have to backfill i guess some of the teachers who are existing in in schools but a better understanding of the continuum of provision or the the, the possible options of provision might better help all children um, wherever they are in education, and particularly, as we've mentioned earlier, maybe some of those quiet, unseen, missed ones? I think I think it's knowing your local area is the first thing. So I think it'd be really helpful if teachers, they've got so much to learn, so I feel really guilty about saying this, but what the local picture looks like in terms of exclusions um, how many children are excluded from your area from your school how about the children that haven't attended school because um, they refuse they might have um, emotional based school refusal for example and how many children are not able to attend school because they're unwell I think that would be helpful to understand your local community in that way and then going okay so 
those are the needs of our community. So where do they go? What does happen? Um, and having that interest in what's around them. Um, I think, again, I just feel terribly guilty because so much is happening. But if there's opportunities for them to go beyond the kind of visit of just seeing what's happening on a day-to-day basis, but whether or not they've got the opportunity as continual professional development to go and visit for a week, two weeks, and all those sorts of things, I think that would be great as well, um, and really finding out a bit more about um, a child. But also, how about, so, for example, the teaching, um, the statutory induction says that essentially you don't want to um, overload um, the early careers teachers with, you know, discipline issues, but also I understand that, but wouldn't it be helpful to see how someone might um, support a child who's finding the classroom difficult as well within within the mainstream school so they can also learn from others too? Um, so I think there's lots of opportunities, but where on earth do you squeeze that in? I don't know. Well, you know, we come within a, a time frame where in England you know, there is now a two-year um, early careers teacher yeah. framework, you know, expectation. In Wales, we don't have that. We still have the NQT year for a year. So we have e- even less time when you are officially, you know, starting your career, if that makes sense. So even less time there. But I agree with all of those points. And, and I would add, and, and this is from, a, you know, a real personal context, that you really have to understand your community and your catchment and what the needs are going on in that. And the the reason I say that is, um, you know, I grew up in Cambridge, which is a, a city divided between town and gown, and it is one of the the places in the in England certainly where they say that there is the biggest divide between rich and poor, um, because of the nature of where it is. Um, but Swansea is very similar, and so we have within Wales, within Swansea, we have um, my within my catchment area for my current school. Um, we have one of the the areas that is, I think, within the top twenty of the poorest areas within Swansea for depri- within Wales for deprivation out of about two thousand. But we also, at the other end of the bay, have one that is one of the richest. I mean, Catherine Zeta Jones has a house down that way, mm. you know. And so, depending on which school you do your placement in in Swansea you could have a very different experience of yes. the kind of needs that might be within your community. And I am wary of, you know, over-emphasizing deprivation um, as a factor because there are things that can happen anywhere, you know, uh, no, no matter what your school is. But having an understanding of adverse childhood experiences that can come from deprivation within your school and understanding your context, I think would really help. I think... Um... I think you're right to point out the issues around poverty and deprivation being um, a significant factor in children's outlook on education, um, but also perhaps their parents as well, but also how people might um, acknowledge what their next steps are in terms of having high expectations of all children. So I I work in areas that are particularly, um, you know, in London, you might have, again, as you've kind of indicated, part of the richest areas but easily part of the poorest areas and what does that mean in terms of how children um, engage with education um, how much resource is available for those children and um, what is accessible and so on and how are they supported um, I work with children who might live in temporary accommodation and there might be four of them um, 
in a bedroom in a hotel? Um, how does that help them in terms of engaging with education? So I think we can't lose sight of that. That becomes um, really important um, about part of their overall experiences. And sometimes we don't realise, and how, and how would we? We might have very different experiences ourselves around um, our home life and our education and so on. So it's about having an acknowledgement of the huge things that might be happening for children, but whilst maintaining that high expectations, but thinking about how can I make this easier for this child? How can I make it different for them? And yeah, and I think that, you know, as you also mentioned, that kind of getting more experience, because as I say, I spoke to, I think there was eight or nine PGC students today. And one of the one of the questions I asked, and, and they may well have lied, you know, it's an uncomfortable situation. But, I, you know, I asked what their experience of alternative provision or um, pupil referral units was, you know, a, 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 you know, if anyone was willing to share that they had been excluded or, or, or on, you know, a suspension, as it was called when I was at school, um, you know, for a, a fixed term exclusion. And I would suggest I would put out there that teaching as a profession probably has less people do that because you are more likely to be educated to a higher standard if you have been successful at school and so less likely to have personally experienced it. Yeah, I think that's interesting um, what you've said is that, uh, but also I think you could live in poverty but still going to teaching. So I would say that my own upbringing, um, whilst I was never excluded or otherwise, um, you know, you could start counting up my um, adverse childhood experiences, which I think is limited anyway for lots of different reasons. But I could, you know, I've had quite a traumatic upbringing. Um, but that also drove me to really want children to love learning. Uh, that school was always my safe place. Um, and people come into education from a range of different ways. I do wonder if those that gravitate towards pupil referral units and alternative provisions have had more challenges in school. Um, and that's why they gravitate to it or whether or not they enjoy it for lots of other reasons. Um, it would be an interesting piece of work to have a comparison. Um, you know, maybe we need to um, oh, I can, teach I can, a tap and have a little assess, like yeah. a little survey. I, 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 you know, I, I can honestly say that I relate heavily to some of the children who I work with, you know, and that's probably as far as I should go on it, you know, but I can yeah. certainly relate heavily to to the the challenges they face and yeah maybe that is a part of um I would like to think that any you know anyone with a passion for children doing well that you you know I don't believe that you have to come from the the community that you serve in that sense or that you know only people with a certain background can relate to certain types of you know I don't believe that no. but I think um you know maybe there is an understanding that comes from either seeing family or friends who you know who have struggled that that might give you a different view and if that is helpful as as we conject that maybe more you know maybe that's a thing how do we support you know how do I support other teachers who haven't had that experience to have that same passion you know I guess it's that that I'm trying to figure out is that okay you know if you, you you didn't have the same upbringing that I had but I want you still to care about these children as much as I care about them but for a different reason and whether I can engender that and I think you're right by spending time with them I think you know th that might help absolutely I think it's it's really difficult in a class of 30 or beyond 
trying to know all the children in acute detail and it's not what I wanted in terms of my own um, professional career uh, I love teaching though I do love teaching um, but I wanted to do it on a scale where I could intervene and support more individually um, but everyone's different as well so some people really love mainstream and they really love their subject and really want to um, engage with their subject and sort of supporting children's knowledge in that subject and that's great as well and I think there's a place for all different types of teachers from all different backgrounds um, and yeah I think you're exactly right just because you don't come from the same community or the same background doesn't mean you can't teach those children um, I hope that I can equally teach sociology to children that have had um, really positive experiences with their family school and have all the resources in the world just as much as teaching sociology to children that found things really difficult um i think yeah a love of learning can be shared throughout communities um and we you know we we have one more ad break to go and we we have been chatting away so the show is running um but this is my um uh, my worry for the the area that that, that we're talking about is that people you know we've talked about funding we've talked about you know i have a feeling that sometimes people might uh, particularly mainstream colleagues may well you know see it as a child who they find difficult to relate to or difficult to engage is better out of sight out of mind or they may forget about us and as long as we are not causing trouble they may you know put us in 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 a corner for want of a better word or worse I fear that people may see the, the, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the the exclusion on a long term basis to a, a, a you know, a, this is not my understanding of pupil referral units or AP, but m many people may may believe that it is a poorer education. You know, they see that as still like an ongoing punishment. I think. Just like children are different, I think head teachers and how they run their schools are different. So I think head teachers, the majority that I've worked with, take exclusions incredibly serious. And the local authorities have a duty to kind of consider whether or not it's a fair and proportionate exclusion. Um, and good local authorities will question, will highlight and will um will confront head teachers that don't follow the exclusions guidance. But equally, because everybody is different, I've worked with head teachers that have drawn a line um, under working with a child and don't see them as part of their community um, and want them gone. Um, and again, the local authority needs to be really robust in confronting that. Um, but also governors need to be really robust in confronting that. Um, I think you've got Noreen um, doing the show yep. afterwards. Um, and obviously, in terms of the role of a governor to in terms of the governor's discipline committee, really holding head teachers to account. Um, but then also governors are restricted in their abilities to reinstate a child. But also if a child is excluded from school and the governor still decide to reinstate, the relationship between the school has broken down so significantly that, you know, if I was a parent of that child and I felt that the exclusion was unfair and the governors agreed with me, would I want my child to go back to that school? Absolutely not. Um, so in that way, it becomes, I think there needs to be better accountability, which really has a, 
um, potency to really hold head teachers that aren't being inclusive to account. Now, in my experience, the majority of head teachers do act in the best interest of children, um, but there are some who who don't. And I think that needs to be called out um, and people need to be held to account around the way that they run their schools and to make sure that they're included. Yeah, I, you know, I couldn't agree more, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, it, if you want to do something about it, but, you know, I, I would say put your money where your mouth is and fund a decent provision that, that can address it. Don't, you know, there is a, for me, and this is the strongest, uh, you know, I have, I have really talked on Teacher Talk Radio, but I think that sometimes that is a coward's way out from facing up to a complex problem that, you know, really we are paid to deal with, you know, and... It, I think as well, once you've ex- there's a dilemma there because once you've excluded a child um, and it's gone through the governor's discipline committee and if it goes, um, then they can be taken off role if it goes to independent review panels and so on. Um, but if you want to instruct a child to go to a pupil referral unit, you have the powers to do that as a head teacher, but it may cost you, you might have funding constraints. Whereas if you exclude, then it is no longer your responsibility in terms of funding. If you retain um, responsibility in terms of qualifications and progress, regardless, um, I wonder what exclusions might look like in the future. And I think only recently there was an article in Schools Week, I think this week, around um, really unethical conversations like you know let's call it out immoral conversations around taking children off roll um by virtue of the fact that they weren't going to do very well academically um because it would look better for the school but then there's also issues around high stake inspections and what that means for head teachers and um, senior leaders as well but i think again if we work together for a community um, which is the children that live in our area, irrespective of whether or not they attend our school, um, we work collaboratively, then I think that's in the best interest of children and in best interest of our school community as well. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think, you know, sometimes the system... Um, causes you know consequences that you know i think maybe if there was a different way people would make different choices um now we have to go to an ad break but when we come back it'll be great to get your final thoughts um just before we end the show is that okay to uh, to stick around yep lovely stuff we'll see you on the other side of the adverts need support with your phonics teaching did you know oxford university press now has three dfe validated programs to help you read write ink phonics floppies phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. 
I'm your host, Deanna Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about Black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. And welcome back. Welcome back, back to Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back to Swansea. And we are here with Sarah Dove talking about pupil referral units and alternative provisions and what early careers teachers should know. Now, thank you, Sarah. You have actually saved me some time by doing our shout out for the next show on tonight, which is uh, Noreen. And, you know, she has uh, the um, Stammer Teacher, he goes by on Twitter, um, which I'm really um, excited about and I will be tuning in for um, because it's something I feel passionately about because I think there is nothing worse that you can do to someone than take their voice and 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 you know not allow them a voice in a conversation um uh, and and so i'm really excited about hearing that one next and of course tomorrow we do have um tom rogers who has a show um talking about autism so again that's another one i'm really excited for but as we wrap things up what would you like to be your final message to any early careers teachers listening about uh, pupil referral units and uh, alternative provision? I think um, I would say be professionally curious and reach out to your local pupil referral unit alternative provision and see if you can have a visit. Fantastic stuff. And again, thank you so much um, for coming in. I hope it hasn't been too controversial for you. This is I'm normally quite vanilla, but there are a few things that get me uh, a little bit hot under the cover. And this is one of them when, um, you know, when people say some things that I disagree with. No, that's absolutely fine. I mean, I'm happy to have a chat and to converse about it um, and find out people's perspectives and views in a way that is um, respectful and professional. So if people want to get in contact with me afterwards um, and to talk more about my views, I'm more than happy to. Lovely. And you said you're writing another book. Um, I've been commissioned to write another two books, um, one for primary and one for secondary for social, emotional, mental health, um, which will be really interesting as well. Okay. And tell me, in in time for Christmas, for my Christmas list, or am I going to have to wait? Well, just to let you know, I am also heavily pregnant. Um, so to balance writing books as well. So it won't be written until next year. Um, so if you want to buy my current book, feel free, um, especially because I'm expecting twins. Um, so okay. it would be helpful to buy. Yeah, I, I, can re- I can thoroughly recommend the book. And congratulations <laughs> to you. And definitely, you know, help her out there. Because I, I can tell you now that the one child when I had it was a, was a shock to the expenses. So certainly everyone... <laughs> crowdfunding here well worth it for the book very exciting (laughs) thank you so much thank you take care lovely to speak to you and thank you for letting me on the show Uh, it's been a pleasure right uh, nostar everyone good night from here in swansea you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org 
We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.